0: Good afternoon to all of you. It's a privilege to be here with you on a rainy day in Charlotte, North Carolina. Sometimes we put another adjective in there, a miserable rainy day. But you know, that's a matter of perspective. We lived in Georgia for about three years, and it was a popular song I used to listen to, especially at night when I was driving home when it was raining. It was called A Rainy Night in Georgia. It was a very soft, Melody, And it kept me in a good attitude because I'm driving home to a popular song, Rainy Night in Georgia. If you have been to Scotland, England, Ireland, and Wales, a day like this would be a soft afternoon. A soft afternoon. You know, there's a proverb that says a soft answer turns away wrath. And describing a miserable day like today as a soft day puts you in a different attitude. It's a privilege to be here with you, we have about 204 people here today, you know, Rod McNair and his family are gone, so that's half the congregation. (laughs) But to begin, I'd like you to turn to Matthew 24, Matthew 24, I think most of you know what is there, but I'd like to focus on a couple of things. When Jesus' disciples ask him, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How are we going to know we're getting close to the end of the age? Now, Jesus did not respond in a very general way. He said, well, you know, I might be back tonight. Tomorrow night could be ten years from now, a hundred years from now. He didn't answer that way. He gave some very specific things to look for. In verse verse 4, he said, Take heed that no one deceives you, For many will come in my name and deceive many, saying, I am the Christ, I am a Christian, I am a minister of God. And they'll deceive many people. He said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you're not troubled, because these things must come to pass. It's going to get worse. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation. The word here is ethnos, which means one ethnic group is going to rise against another ethnic group, which is what we're seeing today. And kingdom against kingdom, that would be nation as we view it today, against kingdom will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places, and these are the beginning of sorrows. Jesus then goes on to list a number of other specific things that we could watch for, including verse 14. It said, This gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the coming kingdom of God, not going off to heaven, but of Christ's reign on this earth, Will be preached in all the world as a witness. And then the end will come. Now, there's some people today that say, Mr. Armstrong did that, it's all done, it's all over. And yet, Jesus didn't say it's going to stop at a certain time, and then time will go on for another 25, 30, 40, 50 years. He said, This gospel will be preached in all the world, which is what we're doing today. You're getting on these radio stations that cover all, and television stations that cover all of South America, from Russia, from Moscow to Vladivostok, all of Europe, pretty much all over the United States and Canada, and different places around the world, is happening. These things are happening today. But If you look down then at verse 42 and 43 and 44, we find some other instructions that Jesus said, He said, watch, therefore, because you don't know the hour your Lord is coming. You've got to keep watching. You've got to keep your eyes open. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed him to break in. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you don't expect. He said, keep your eyes open. You know, brethren, as we watch world news, <clears throat> as we look at the news that pops up on our Internet screens, we see a world at war today. If you read the newspaper every morning. You find one group of people fighting against another group of people, angry people, demonstrating, you know, burning things down and, and blowing things up. These are the things that we see in the news today. We see wars within nations in Egypt, in Syria, Iraq, other places. We see wars between nations, what's happening in Southeast Asia with China, Japan, the Philippines, different places around the world. We see cultural wars that we're fighting in our country today, conservatives against liberals, issues such as homosexuality, same-sex marriage, legalizing pot the criminalization of Christianity, one faction against another. This is what we see wherever we look. Political wars, Democrats versus Republicans, and fighting it out in the Senate. <laughs> We're in the House of Representatives. And you look in other countries. It's one political group against another political group. And a lot of anger and a lot of emotion. But, you know, as we watch this continuous parade of warfare, around the world and the angry confrontations, there's a question that most people don't want to think about. They don't want to consider where is all of this leading? Where is all of this leading? What is going to happen as if the Iranians come up with an atomic bomb? If Japan increases its military, what's going to happen? Where is it leading? You know, we're told in verses twenty one and twenty two. <clears throat> Jesus said, unless those days at the end of the age were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Unless Jesus Christ returns and stops the madness, no flesh is going to be saved. But for the elect's sake, those few that God is calling right now, God is going to intervene and cut things short. For the elect's sake, these days shall be shortened. This is what we understand is going to come. No flesh is going to be saved. Things are going to get really bad before Christ returns. But you know, when you look at history, history is a story of warfare. If you just look back very quickly... In the 1700s, they fought what was called the Seven Years' War. It was called the French and Indian War in this country. But this was one of the first global conflicts that involved European powers fighting with each other, and America happened to be part of the, the game board at that time. During the 1600s, it was a Thirty Years' War. This was the Protestants versus Catholics in Central Europe. Also in the 1600s, was an 80 years war where the Dutch were fighting the Spanish Habsburgs for independence. And in the 1300s, there was a hundred years war. The French had, or the British had some claims to French territory. They went over and started fighting over there. But it was a hundred years of warfare. And then in our last century, we've had World War I, World War II. This has been the sad history of human civilizations. There's also some very interesting books. I've got one here that's in our library talking about great battles of the world. And this is 50 battles that changed the world, where one battle literally changed the course of history. Some very interesting books to read that way. And I hate to disappoint you, but this is not a lecture this afternoon on military history. It's not going to be. But I want to come back to the subject a little bit later and talk about some very important lessons we can learn from some of these battles. What I'd like to focus on today is the question what do battles and wars have to do with you as a Christian? What do battle that's not the title, I'm just working up to the title. (laughs) But what do battles have to do with you as a Christian? What do wars and battles have to do with members of the Church of God? And what do they have to do with the peoples in the world? Why should we spend time on the Sabbath talking about wars and battles? Especially whenever Jesus said, you shall not kill, Matthew chapter 5. He said the Christians should not be angry with their brothers and sisters. We shouldn't be doing things like that. He said we're to love our enemies. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would fight. And Jesus also said in Matthew 26, verse 52, those that take up the sword die by the sword. Now, we understand from those scriptures that Christians should not be bearing arms and should not be fighting in the wars of this world. And while we believe these teachings of Jesus, Paul said some very interesting things that are just a little bit different. If you turn to First Timothy, a couple of scriptures to look at very quickly, Paul had something else to say that sounds a little bit different. In First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, he said, "...fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life, to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." So Paul is telling Christians to fight the good fight of faith. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, you don't need to turn there, but he's urging Christians there to be good soldiers, to fight the good fight of faith, be good soldiers. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 7, he talks about, I have fought a good fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. But what's Paul talking about when he says, be a good soldier and fight this fight of faith? What's he talking about whenever Jesus said we shouldn't kill anybody? Paul explains himself in the book of Ephesians. Paul explains about the fighting and the battles and so on that he's urging Christians to take part of in the book of Ephesians. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Paul says here to the church in Ephesus, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the devices of the devil. In other words, we're going to have to fight in some battles. And he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. And then he explains what we're fighting. In verse 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not fighting physical battles, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness, the dark side of the force, so to speak, of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. What Paul is talking about as Christians I think we need to understand as people, not just Christians, we're involved in fighting spiritual battles, battles in the mind, battles in the mind. You find out a little bit about the adversary we're dealing with in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Again, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus, In you he made alive, talking about Jesus Christ, opening our minds with the power of his spirit, who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were doing things that were just plain wrong until God opened our mind to begin to understand that these are not things that we should be doing. In which he once walked according to the course of this world, like everybody else does, according to the prince of the power of the air. He looked this up in a couple of different translations. He said, according to the ruler of the air, or the master spirit of the air. We talked about, Mr. Armstrong did this years ago, the saint broadcasts attitudes, impulses, that he tries to beam into our minds. And it will cause us to do certain things. You know, I've used this example a number of times before whenever... One Friday night, we were down in the basement of our house up in Massachusetts, and we started to walk upstairs to put the boys to bed. They were somewhat smaller at that time. And I was walking up the stairs, and one of the boys was behind me, and another one was behind him. And all of a sudden, I heard this, oh! And I turned around, and one of the boys had kicked the other one in the stomach because he was about two steps higher. It was just a good shot. And I grabbed the boy behind me, and I said, why did you do that? He said, I just felt like it. I just felt like it. I said, Who do you think would put a thought like that in your mind to kick your brother? He thought for a minute and he said, I think I know. (laughs) I said, One of the lessons of life that we've got to learn is that we don't act on every thought that comes into our mind. See, we've got a spiritual battle to fight. Satan beams a thought in there, and we have to make a decision. We have to make an evaluation: I'll do that, or I'm not going to do that. These are the battles that we have to fight, and that's what I want to talk about today. We fight these battles with the Prince of the Power of the Air, the ruler of uh, <clears throat> the air wave, so to speak who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Our mind wants to go over here. Our mind wants to go over there. We have to say, no, we can't do that. Or, no, I'm not going to do that. But these are the battles that not only you fight, You know, there are drug addicts and other types of people in the world. They're not part of the church, but they have to fight the same battles. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this over here, and it's a struggle. And yet God has given us a perspective that he's not given to the world yet today, and he's given us tools to fight these battles that are more effective than what the world has to fight. So what I want to do in a sermon today, brethren, is talk about the battle of your mind or the battle for your mind, the spiritual battles that we wage and Satan will wage against us in our minds. God gives us an understanding of what's going on, but the world doesn't fully understand what is going on. It's merely, well, I feel I can do this, I feel I can do that. Well, that's how carnal people feel. But the Bible tells us there are things that we should not do if we want to be in the kingdom of God. And there are other things that we must do if we hope to be in the kingdom of God. So I want to talk about the battle for your mind that we have to fight in this life. There's going to be reward if we fight it successfully. There will be consequences if we don't fight those battles successfully. So I want to ask some questions. Why do we have to fight battles? Why is Satan involved? What's he trying to do? What kind of methods does he use that we need to recognize? You know, if you've ever watched the film Patton with George C. Scott, it's a very interesting line in the movie. Patton was fighting Rommel the Desert Fox in North Africa. They're fighting a tank battle. And at one point in time, Rommel's forces moved a certain way, and Patton says, I knew you were going to do that. I read your book. I knew you'd make that move because I read your book. He understood his enemy. We need to understand what we're dealing with. You know, you've probably been to some of these churches or may have where Preacher gets all wound up. We're going to kick Satan out of here. We're going to kick him in the rear. We're going to do this to him. Do that to him. Satan's probably laughing because he's directing the whole thing. <laughs> he knows what's going on. Satan's not stupid. He's very crafty. He's very wise. And this is the, the adversary that we're dealing with that we need to understand. But as I mentioned, God has given us weapons to use that the world doesn't have just now because he wants us to win and having certain weapons is important when you're fighting a battle how can we successfully wage and win spiritual battles in this life and what do we have to gain why do it why make the effort so this is where i want to go in the sermon today Roman numeral one, I want to talk about why do we have to fight spiritual battles? You know, God is love, and Jesus loves us, so why do we have to fight? Why can't we just love everybody? Well, there's an adversary that doesn't want us to get along with each other. You know, as Christians, we have several goals, one of which you read about in Matthew 6, verse 33, where it says, seek first the kingdom of God, but then there's another couple words there. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And His righteousness. Strive to obey the laws of God. Follow the instructions. Psalm 119, verse 172. It says, All thy commandments are righteousness. This should be one of our goals as a Christian, to strive to live by the laws of God because then things will go better. You know, you can break the laws of god god says don't steal and if you steal you get thrown in jail if you're caught in some cultures it's a big deal to see what you can get away with without being caught <laughs> but eventually people are caught and then there's a penalty to pay i remember visiting one gentleman in one part of the country where i pastored and it seemed like every time he got in trouble he got put in jail in fact he called so many times our boys would recognize the name Hey Dad, so-and-so's in jail again. <laughs> he wants to talk to you. That was the only time he'd call. I asked him one time I said, "Why are you in jail?" He said, "I never learned to respect authority." When I wanted to do something, I did it. And I visited him in almost every county jail in, in the area where we live. It was just a matter of time, every couple of years. He was back in. You know, we can break the laws of God, and pay the penalty, reap the consequences, or we can begin to obey the laws of God. You know, our human minds says, "I'm going to do my own thing." Well, do it, but be prepared to face the consequences. You know, God doesn't want us to have to go through a lot of bad things. That's why He gives us His laws. But why do we have to fight spiritual battles? Part of our purpose on earth is to develop the mind and character of God. To develop the mind and character of God. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul says here to the church in Philippi, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. In other words, learn to think as Jesus would think. You know, what would Jesus do in this circumstance? What would he do in this circumstance? You know, if you've already had two or three drinks and somebody offers you another one, well, Jesus wouldn't have taken the third or fourth one. <laughs> he might have had one. But then he'd said, look, I've had enough tonight. That's enough for me. We've got to make decisions that way. If we want to be kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God, we've got to show God that we will act as Jesus Christ would act in those positions of responsibility. That we would handle circumstances like Christ would handle it. You know, when you give your kids the keys to the car, you're hopeful they will treat the car the way you would treat the car even when you're not there. <laughs> I know when I first started driving my dad's car, one time we were going around a bend on a snowy day. And I thought, it might be fun to see if I can spin the wheels. And we spun the wheels, and the car spun around and wound up in this kid's front yard. <laughs> and it was kind of embarrassing. Fortunately, we missed a telephone pole by two or three feet. If we'd have hit that pole, my dad would have probably hit me with the pole. Because <laughs> would have smashed it up pretty bad. Another time I took a corner too fast, my brother and I were going out to go ice skating, and we slid right off the road. I realized we're gonna have to get somebody to help me out pushing the car out, and just then the principal of the high school <laughs> and his two boys came up to the stop sign. <laughs> he got a well, Doug Waddell, what are you doing here in the ditch? <laughs> I said, we, we slid off the road. I didn't tell him I went around it too fast. But it was embarrassing. If I'd have gone a little bit slower, not taken the chance, I wouldn't have gone off the road and had the principal of the high school push me out of the ditch. You know, if we just do things God's way, it's really much better instead of trying to do it our own way. Okay, why do we have to fight spiritual battles? God is in the business of developing character. God is in the business of developing character. And when we're faced with decisions, will I do this or will I do this? We have a decision to make. And God is watching. God is watching to see what decisions we will make. If we make good decisions, guys are going to be able to use us in the coming kingdom of God to teach others how to live. But if we develop a track record of making bad decisions, we may not be in the kingdom of God you know, unless we repent, unless we change. So God is in the business of building character. And as Christians... As Christians, we're going to have battles to fight. We're going to have decisions to make. Turn, if you would, to First uh, Peter chapter 4. First <clears throat> Peter chapter 4. I remember watching a Billy Graham film a number of years ago when I was first coming into the church. And uh, <clears throat> this man and woman were sitting in their car talking, and they'd, been, they'd given their heart to the Lord, and they'd been converted uh, as they understood it. And the husband made a comment to the wife. He said, you know, uh, giving our heart to the Lord is just like having God in your back pocket. It's just so warm and wonderful and so on. Well, the Bible has some different things to say. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Paul mentions here another perspective that is not all fun and games and peace and joy and happiness. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial or the fiery ordeal, or the fiery tests, uh, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that that you partake of Christ's sufferings. So Paul is saying here there's going to be trials that come along. Down in verse 14, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel be. We are going to be tried. We're going to be tested. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 to 15, maybe just jot that down. But it mentions there that trials will come. And they're going to test what you're building your character with. If you're building with gold and silver and things like that, good, solid building materials, it's not going to melt during trials. But if you build with wood, hay, and stubble different philosophies and off-base ideas, there will be consequences. You make bad decisions, there will be consequences. So trials will come. will come to Christians, and it comes to people in the world. You know, our high schools today are filled with drugs and all kinds of things like that. These kids aren't converted. They're not called by God yet. But they're having to fight battles. Whether they'll try a drug, whether they'll try and do this and try and do that, or whether they'll not. And some of these kids are building a fairly strong character by saying, no, I'm not going to do that. They're not called by God yet. But God is probably watching, and he may call them down the road. See, human beings have trials and tribulations to face. As Christians, we have special ones to face. Because Satan is after you. If you've been called, you know the truth. He's going to work on you more. He's going to work on you more. Now, it may be surprising in this age that we would call a God-loves-you age. Well, just God loves you and God loves everybody. But, you know, there's another dimension to God. Turn to a uh, number of scriptures we could go to. Go to Psalm 7, verse 9, just to give you an insight. God loves us. Christ loves us. Christ gave his life for us. But again, there's another side to the God that we worship, to the God of the Bible. Psalm chapter 7 and verse 9. It says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. God will test us. To see what we're made of. If he's going to give us eternal life, he's got to know what we're going to do with that. With that power. With that understanding. And he's not going to give us eternal life and make us spirit beings if he's not sure how we'll handle it. You know, you can see the the uh, meeting in heaven some, some, you know, some morning where the angels come roaring in and say, You know, that person that you made a spirit being, he just blew up a whole nation. He got mad. And he called for earthquakes and lightning strikes and everybody just dissolved and disappeared. God say, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I shouldn't have done that. He wasn't ready. God's not going to wind up in a position like that. If he's going to make us spirit beings and give us power, James and John were called what? The sons of thunder. Why? Because their suggestion was, problem over there? Hit him with a lightning bolt. But it was John later that wrote, my little children. <laughs> you know, be patient, be loving. This was a guy that changed. Got a handle on those angry responses. God will test us to find out what we're made of, to find out how we're working with and how we're doing. Psalm 11, verses 4 to 7. This theme runs through the scriptures. That God is a loving God, but he's in the process of building character. And he wants to see how we're coming along. He wants to help us along. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and his eyelids test. Examine the sons of men. God will test all of us and allow us to be tested. In Proverbs 17, verse 3, maybe just jot it down, read it, and think about it later, it talks about the refining pot. You put heat under a pot. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. You burn off the impurities. The heat exposes the, the impurities. But it says the Lord tests the heart. That God examines what's in our heart. You know, if we're given power and responsibility, will we abuse it? Will we use it lovingly, firmly in some cases? You know, you can read in Genesis 22 verse 1 that God tested Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were childless. They were allowed to have a child, miraculously. And then God said to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, take him up in the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. But you read in verse 1 that God was testing Abraham. Will he do what I've asked him to do? And then God worked out the situation where he didn't need to offer him, but he wanted to see if Abraham was willing to do what he was asked to do. You know, I've told people in counseling before, be willing to do whatever God wants you to do. And if it's going to be a real trial, chances are... You may not have to give up something, but God wants to see if you'd be willing to give up something that stands in the way. And once he sees the willingness, then in many cases he he doesn't ask you to give something up. He wants to see what is in our heart, what is in our mind, what our attitudes are, because he's in the business of building character. Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 3. The Israelites were told to drive the Canaanites out of the land because they were doing bad things but they didn't do it the whole way and God said I'm going to leave them I'm going to leave them there I'm not going to drive them out for you because they'll become a test for you as to whether or not you will obey me or whether you'll be sucked into their religion and go off in a wrong direction. We too, brethren, are going to be tested. And there's going to be trials and tribulations and battles that we're going to have to fight. Because God is in the business of building character. And we're all going to have decisions to make that we need to plan for, we need to understand, and we need to prepare to fight these spiritual battles. So this is why we have battles to fight. Because God wants us to be in the kingdom of God. He wants us to be prepared to teach others. You know, I've found as a minister and counseling with people, I've had to draw on literally every experience that I've had. When you're sitting there talking to people and say, well, I was there, I was in a situation like that, or I saw a situation like that, and here's how it can be handled. In some cases, I have to say better than I handled it. There are better ways. Because sometimes we make bad decisions, and we learn by the hard way. But if we can learn from that and then pass that lesson along to help somebody else out, it's going to be very helpful. So there's a purpose for the trials and tribulations. There's a purpose for the battles that we have to fight. Roman numeral two, if we're going to fight and win spiritual battles, we need to understand our enemy. We need to understand our enemy, much like Patton understood Rommel. And he knew what he would do in certain situations, or at least he, he probably figured it, he'll probably do this. Because he read his book. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, now these are very fundamental scriptures. But we never want to forget the fundamental scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, we're told a little bit about Satan and how he operates. Peter mentions here, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the one who's out to destroy you, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now lions, for the most part, don't just walk around and growl for the sake of growling, because they give themselves away. If they see something they're going to go after They don't go, I'm going to get you. No, they sneak up in the grass, very softly, very slowly. And then as they spring, they go for it. Satan walks around, and we've got to be vigilant. But, you know, you can't be vigilant if you don't know what to watch for. You can't be watching for Satan if you don't know how he operates. So we've got to realize some of these things. He walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom he may destroy. If he can destroy you, you won't be in the kingdom of God. And that's his goal. He doesn't want you there. He doesn't want me there. He doesn't want anybody there. And Peter's advice is resist him, stand up and fight. Don't roll over and die. Resist him steadfast in the faith. You've got to have something to hang on to. You know, the laws of God, knowing that the same suffering sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You know, a lot of people don't realize what they're up against. You know, kids growing up in school, people at work, hey, it's cool to get drunk. You know, it's cool to swear. It's cool to... Uh, Go out and have sex. It's cool to do all these things. And people try and emphasize how, how cool they are, how with it they are, doing dumb things. Doing dumb things. Your Proverbs talks about a man that commits adultery with a woman is stupid. Is absolutely stupid. But that's not the message that kids get in high school. That's not the message that people get on the workplace. It's cool to do those things. Not really. It's stupid. You know, you drink a lot, you're going to destroy brain cells. You sleep around a lot, you're going to come up with AIDS sooner or later. This, this is what happens. There are consequences. Other Proverbs talk about a person that commits adultery lacks understanding. They don't understand the consequences. That come by this little innocent well, nobody knows didn't hurt anybody. well that's what you think. That's what you think there are consequences that come from these things. We need to understand who we're dealing with and he will Satan will go after us. you can read in job chapter one that, that God allowed Satan to go after job. God allowed Satan to go after job. Satan came before God, and God says, what do you think of my servant Job over there? Satan said, you're protecting him. You're protecting him. Let me at him. And God said, okay. You can go after him for a little bit. You have certain limitations. But God allowed that. Satan went after Christ. Matthew chapter 4. You might want to read that chapter. Because Satan quoted scriptures to Christ out of context. Christ knew what the Scriptures were, and he came back with an answer because Christ knew the Scriptures. Satan knew them too, but he tried to put a twist on them. And that was a temptation that Christ had to deal with. Matthew 16, Satan put some thoughts in Peter's mind. Christ said, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. Peter said, no way. Over my dead body you will what was Christ's response? He said, get behind me, Satan. You're not, you don't have your, your mind on the things of God. You're thinking from a human perspective. So Satan had a chance to go after Christ. He was allowed to do that. He went after Peter. And he will go after you and me because you represent a potential son or daughter of God. So we've got to be prepared to fight these battles. You can read in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, a little bit about Satan. talks about how full of wisdom he is. He's smart. He's cagey. He exalts himself. And this is one of the attitudes that we have to fight as human beings of self-exaltation, wanting to be noticed, wanting to be number one, wanting to have power, wanting to be in charge. These are attitudes that come from the wrong direction. Satan rebelled against God, Revelation 12. You might want to read that whole chapter. He took a third of the angels with him. He was smooth. He got them on his side. And then he tried to rebel against God. A perverted mind would only do that. Only a perverted mind would try and rebel against the God of the universe. But Satan tried we're told there he deceived the whole world. Satan is a deceptive individual. And this is where we've got to watch our thoughts because it may seem right to us. It may seem innocent to us. But God takes a very different view. You know, several different Proverbs talk about there's a way that seems right to a person, but the outcome of that way is Death. Well, I didn't think it was such a bad idea. I didn't think it was so bad. But you don't understand. You don't understand the consequences, the ramifications. God is trying to keep us from messing up our lives. And yet Satan is out there to try and mess up your life. The earlier, the better. See, these, these are the battles that we have to fight. We have to be aware of these things. Satan is an accuser of the brethren. He starts rumors. He sends those rumors around. Anciently, they passed it on from ear to ear. Today, we just press a button on the Internet, and it goes all over the world with rumors and gossip. This is how Satan operates. He's very clever, very deceptive. He's an evil individual that wants to destroy you. Let's look at one other scripture here while we're looking at the nature of our enemy. In Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Advice that Jesus Christ was giving to his disciples. And <clears throat> we go over this oftentimes when we're counseling someone for baptism. <clears throat> Luke 14, beginning in verse 26 says, if anyone comes to me, Jesus said, and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying is, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to set priorities in your life. Obeying God has got to come first. Ahead of how other people think about you. Ahead of other physical priorities. God is not against us, but he said, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to set some priorities in your life. Whoever does not bear his cross, and we all have crosses to bear of one type or another. And we can focus on that cross and think, oh, woe is me, and how terrible, you know, all these things happen to me, and nobody loves me, everybody hates me, let's go eat worms, and, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) We can focus on ourselves. Uh, but we all have crosses to bear. We all have challenges to deal with. And God will help us with those challenges if we let him and if we obey him. Verse 28, for which of you intends to build a tower does not sit down and first count the cost. See if you have enough to finish it. Lest after you've laid the foundation, you're not able to finish it. And people see that and say, he didn't plan ahead very well. And people laugh. But in verse 31, he said, What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? In other words, you think about the battle you're going to fight. You don't just walk out and, I'll take you on. Well, you may not have the wherewithal to win, so you better keep your mouth shut. (laughs) And don't get into something. You know, I joined a fraternity in college. A couple of the older guys took me uptown to a bar one night. What they wanted to do was get me drunk. They said, look, we'll buy you a drink. They said, we'll buy you another drink. And I had a couple, and I realized what they were doing because they did this to a couple of other guys, my friends, weeks before. So I determined I'm going to be sober. So I drank very slowly. I get up, walk around, go to the bathroom, put water on my face. And then some guy who was a local barfly walked up to the table and he looked at me and said, You're new here, aren't you, kid? And I said, Yeah. He said, I'll bet you I can beat you up. And my response was, oh, I'll bet you can't. <laughs> and this guy across the table kicked me under the table and said, Shut up. He said, He tries to do this to everybody. But I was going to take him off. <laughs> but I shouldn't have been in the place to begin with. That I wouldn't have gotten in a situation like that. You know, we, we make some dumb decisions. But fortunately, I had three bigger guys than I was that were there, and they weren't going to let anything happen. They wanted to just have fun with me. But I didn't realize all the consequences. It was fortunate to have some friends. I guess if you call friends that do those things to you, <laughs> friends. But they, they were okay. was okay. This was the way we grow up in the world. But what Jesus is saying here, you need the count to count the cost. You need to think about where you're going, what you're doing. You need to be able to win the spiritual battles. Don't go out and get in battles that uh, you're not going to win. That's stupid. You need to plan. You need to be prepared. So we need to understand our enemy. We need to understand his goal. His goal is to destroy you, to mess up your life. And the message is don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. Don't get into circumstances that will really mess you up. Because in some cases, we wind up doing things in our youth that we have to deal with for the rest of our life. With the rest of our life. We don't want to do that. God doesn't want that to happen to you. Let's recognize just a little bit, and notice Roman numeral three. Some of the weapons that Satan uses to attack us, and again, Paul warns us. He warned the, the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He's talking about forgiving a person that uh, had some problems, starting in verse 10. Now, whom you forgive anything, I will also forgive you. Or I also forgive, for if indeed uh, <clears throat> I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven the one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. The reason Paul forgave and the reason he was encouraging others to forgive this person, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. We don't want to be ignorant of how Satan operates. And Paul talked about that same thing in Ephesians chapter chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. He talks about the wiles of Satan. We've got to be able to stand against the darts, the attacks of Satan. So we need to be sensitive to these things. What kind of weapons does Satan use? I'm going to list several here that we need to be aware of so that whenever these things begin to happen, we can wake up and say, "Uh uh-oh, here's some incoming enemies. We need to be able to recognize these things. Number one is doubts and deception. Satan will try and plant doubts in your mind about how wise your parents are, of how wise the church is is there a God do we have to follow the Bible this is how Satan operates to plant doubts in your mind came across a book recently had a very interesting title it says a manual for creating atheists a manual for creating atheists this is not written in the 1920s it was written this year this is, says uh, let me just read the this book will teach you how to talk people out of their faith you'll learn how to engage the faithful in conversations that help them value reason and rationality and cast doubt on their beliefs i call this activist approach to helping people overcome their faith here's how you can help them abandon their faith and embrace reason. We're going to have to deal with things like this. We're going to have to be alert to the types of reasoning that some people use. You read through these books, and it's basically atheists talking to other atheists. They don't understand the scriptures, they don't understand real Christianity, but they think they're pretty smart because they do see problems with organized religion today. But Satan will plant doubts and deceptions or doubts in our mind using deceptive methods. He did this with Adam and Eve. Satan came up to Eve and said, you know, God told you if you eat of that tree, you're not going to die. He said, I'm here to tell you, you won't die. If you eat it, you will die. Satan says, if you eat it, you're not going to die. Besides, look, it looks good, tastes good. What's the big deal? You eat of it, you're going to be like me. You're going to be like God. And Eve bit. And then Adam took a bite. And they lost out of what God had called them to do. Satan tries to make things look really good. It's not such a big deal. He uses doubt and deception. You you think you're the one true church? How do you know? God has all kinds of churches. God loves everybody. We're all the same. That's not what the Bible says. Satan will try and plant doubts in your mind. He tried to do that with Christ. God said He'll send His angels to get you off the ground. You can jump off the power, the you know, top of the temple. One time when I was coming into the church, I was laying out in the roof of a house that I was renting, and uh, I was learning about spirit beings and God's power. I had this this kind of weird feeling. What would happen if I just step off the edge of a two-story house? Would God save me? I thought, I'd better not try it. (laughs) I'd better not try it. But where did the thought come from? It didn't come from Jesus Christ. It came from another source. But I had to recognize where it was coming from and make a decision that I'm not going to try that. I'm not going to test God that way. Satan will use doubts and deception. But Christ quoted scriptures back to him. Psalm 119, verse 160. David said, the entirety of your word is truth. We need to know what's in the book and live by every word of God. That was how Christ dealt with Satan. He said, we've got to live by every word. If we understand what's in the book and we go back to those scriptures, we're not going to be deceived. We're not going to be deceived if we know what's in the book, but we've got to know what is there. We had this issue over the gospel uh, a year or two or three ago that uh, the gospel can only be about the kingdom of God. It can't be about anything else because Mr. Armstrong didn't talk about anything else. Read the book. Read the book. In 1 Corinthians 15 it talks about the gospel is about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, verse 14, it is about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Ephesians, a couple of places, it is about salvation, it is about grace, it is about mercy. This is all part of the gospel, and all this stuff was silliness. Really, when you read the book, the answers are all there. Satan will try and use doubts and deception. Number two, he will appeal to pride. He will appeal to pride. Now, I realize nobody in the room has this problem, so we can just stop talking about it. No, we all have it. We all have certain buttons that Satan can press, and he can get to us, and he knows what those buttons are. know, you're reading 1 Samuel, Second Samuel, a couple of examples. Saul was told not to offer sacrifices, but he did, and he had a rationale. Well, prophets aren't here. I'm going to have to do something, and I've got to kind of step in and do something. He made a bad decision. He took liberties that were not his to take. We've got people today ordaining themselves as ministers, people proclaiming themselves to be apostles and prophets. You can't do that for yourself. You can't do that for yourself, but some are trying today. Very interesting series of scriptures, 2 Samuel 24 1, and then 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1 to 3. In 1 Samuel it mentions David numbered Israel. Well, he numbered Israel. And one of his leaders said, you know, It's not a good idea, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. You have to go to 1 Chronicles, chapter 21, verse 1 where it said Satan moved David. Satan moved David to number Israel. And he may have had some reason. Well, you know, we may have battles to fight, and I've got to find out how big my forces are, how many cavalry we've got, and how many infantry we have, and how many spears that we have, and chariots and so on. But apparently there was something about it that was a vanity type situation. I've got to find out how big my forces are. But Satan was able to get to David. Again, Proverbs 14.12, as well as several other Proverbs, said there's a way that seems right. David was kind of right in his own mind, but even some of his subordinates said this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea, but David did it anyways. Satan can work with human pride. Number three, the lusts of the eyes or the lusts of the flesh that... Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. And these lusts could be tastes that you develop. It could be for alcohol. It could be for tobacco. It could be for pornography. It could be for a number of things. Overeating. Well, I just like to eat. You know, I shouldn't eat so much, but yeah, you know, I just like to. I remember talking with a person that... Uh, had a diabetic situation. He knew he shouldn't be eating certain things, but I just like desserts. I just like desserts, and there were consequences, unfortunately, that come from these things. But these lusts of the eyes, lust of the flesh, are very difficult to break. Could be gambling. I remember giving some people some some second tithe assistance, or I guess third tithe assistance, and. They would call kind of regularly. And I finally asked them, I said, look, I just gave you some money a month ago. What's going on? And then they came clean. They said, well, we've got a gambling problem. We've got a gambling problem, that we go to the casino every week. And that's why they didn't have money to pay their car insurance and some other things. Because this this lust of the flesh, this lust of the eyes, uh, these are battles that, not just Christians have to fight, but people in this world have to fight the same type of things. You know, if you if you study how the brain works, when you do something over and over and over again, your brain makes connections. The more you do something, the more connections it makes. And the easier it is to do it. And this has good ramifications and it has bad ramifications. If you play the piano and you practice a piece, you practice it enough where you can play it in your brain because these connections are made, which is good. You know, I played basketball in high school and college, and I think I've shot baskets thousands of times. I could do it in my sleep because I've done it so many times. But if you start watching pornography, the more you watch it, the more connections your brain makes. If you're drinking or smoking, and smoking is a very complex behavior. You've got to work your fingers, you got to work your mouth, and you get a jolt from the, uh, the nicotine. It's a complex behavior. People get nervous, they got to do something with their fingers, so they put a, cig- a cigarette there. So to break that habit, you've got to do something else. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over and over. The brain actually modifies itself when we start doing things. It modifies itself when we start thinking things. That's why you've got to be careful what you let your mind think about. Because the more you think about these things, the easier it is to think about it. And then these habits can become addictions. People that get into pornography watch this stuff. They withdraw from other people. They don't understand what they're doing in themselves. But the positive thing is when you stop doing things, these circuits don't work as well. They kind of dissolve. This is how the brain works. It can be modified different ways. You do wrong things, it's easier to do it. You stop doing it, those pathways in your brain begin to dissipate. So we we need to understand how God made us. Satan knows how God made us. That's why he tries to get us to do certain things. And we it well, it's not hurting anybody else. Well, it's hurting you. And it's going to shape your perspective of how you view certain things and how you view people. So this lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, Paul was not just writing to fill up the page. He's saying, look, this is fundamental stuff you need to understand. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 and 13, you notice what Paul is saying here to the church at Corinth. Now again, Corinth was a big, dirty, bustling city. A lot of stuff going on there. Just like if uh, you'd be in San Diego when all the ships come in. A lot of things happen there that are not real good. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 12 and 13, He says, all things are lawful to me. I can do whatever I want, Paul says, but all things are not helpful. It's not wise to do everything. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He talks about fleeing sexual immorality. In other words, you get away from these things. Get away from these things. Don't walk around these things. If you're having a problem with cigarettes, don't keep them at home. Well, just in case I need one. That's a big excuse. i got all this beer in my fridge just in case I get thirsty. (laughs) No, water works just as well. It doesn't kill any brain cells. Uh, You need to think these things through. The lust of the flesh. Paul is saying these are important things. These are important things. Stay away from them. Number four, false teachers. John 8.44 says that Satan is a liar, the father of lies. And it's Satan that fosters lies, promotes lies, tells lies. And you, you know, if you get into the habit of telling lies, you're going to have to be very careful and remember everything you've ever said to anybody. Because if you tell one person one thing and then you lie to somebody else, it's only going to be a matter of time until they'll find out that, hey, he doesn't tell the truth. He told you this, but he told me this. If you don't lie, you never have to worry about what you said. If you don't lie, you don't have to worry about those things. It's just a better way to live. But I want you to notice something in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, Satan is a liar and he promotes attitudes like that. But there's another thing we need to be aware of. And what this, these verses tell us is some people are not aware of these things. Paul starts talking about um, his concern for the people in Corinth. Verse 2, he says, I'm jealous over you for godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband, that is Jesus Christ, that you may present, that I may present you a chaste virgin, virgin, virgin to Christ. And he talks about how Satan deceived Eve by his craftiness, and Satan will try to deceive us by crafty methods that we don't pick up on in some cases. He says, for he who preaches another Jesus, a Jesus with long hair, a Jesus that uh, goes to heaven, a Jesus that uh, uh, came to kind of adjust and change what his father's laws were. If people come preaching another Jesus whom we've not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel, uh, he says, you're going to have to deal with those things. There will be consequences. And then in verse 13, Paul talks about these people coming with a different gospel, about a different Jesus, about a different form of government, all these things. He says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. In Paul's day, people were making themselves apostles and prophets in all probability. We've got the same thing happening today. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing of his minister... What did that say? It's no great thing if his ministers, Satan's ministers, who also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Paul was just talking about false teachers in his age were claiming to be ministers of God, Claiming to represent Jesus Christ. But he said, look, the fruits are just not good. They're they're misleading people. They're leading them off in a different direction. But this is one of the weapons or the devices that Satan will use. Now, do these people think that they're ministers of Satan? No. I'm sure they believe they are ministers of God. But if they're preaching about a different Jesus, their methods are not godly. Some of these methods are obviously not today. They're playing into Satan's hands and they don't even realize it. And we've got to be careful, brethren, because if we follow people that are doing something like that, when they fall in a ditch, we will fall in too. So we've got to keep our eyes open. We've got to be looking. We've got to be watching. We've got to be looking at the fruits. Remember, Jesus said, Many will come in my name and deceive many. You know, if you've been watching the newspapers and some of the articles coming about, coming out about Pope Francis, the stuff that they slip into these articles are very smooth. They said he's sitting on Peter's chair, okay, and that he is the successor to Peter. Okay? And that the Vatican just gave everybody permission to look at Peter's bones. Okay? This is what's in the press. You can go to Catholic sources. Uh, Hans Kung is a Catholic theologian in Germany or Austria. He's about the same age as Pope John Paul II and and Benedict. Uh, But he doesn't buy into the party line. And Kung has made a comment, this whole idea that the popes are the successors to Peter. Now, he's writing as a Catholic. He said is baloney. I'm putting different words in there. He said they're mythical. He said the Catholic Church cannot support those claims. Now, he is a Catholic theologian saying the Catholic Church cannot support those claims. This idea of Peter's bones being found under the Vatican, we've written a couple of articles on this. But there was a 1950 article, this is about when they discovered these bones, a 1950 article in Time Magazine made the statement that several scientists have looked at the bones, and some are chicken bones, some are from someplace else. They're not Peter's bones. This was published in 1950, what, 65 years ago, almost. But 65 years later, The Catholic Church says you can now look at Peter's bones. People will have forgotten the 1950 article, but these are lies. They're lies being told to supposedly validate their claim that the popes are successors to Peter. This is all wrong. History proves it, but people aren't looking to those things. They just i can read right over it. Well, he's sitting on Peter's chair. Well, that's because the Catholic Church is the one true church, right? These are the misunderstandings that are being promoted today. So Satan will promote lies. He'll promote false teachings, Christmas, Easter. The dietary laws are done away with. These are all false ideas. But the world has bought into these ideas because they're not attuned. They don't have God's spirit and they're not going to be receptive to what the truth is. Accusations and rumors. These are also... Weapons that Satan can use. We read, uh, you can read in Revelation 12:10 that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. All you have to do is go on the internet, and there's some really juicy things that they'll say about Dr. Meredith. I would encourage you go talk to Dr. Meredith, ask him, "Are you a rat?" (laughs) This was one of the things that was on just last week. (laughs) But ask him. You know, go to the source. The rumors are Doug Whanale has had too much education. He's a liberal. And he lives in an ivory tower. Well, I got fired down in Big Sandy for giving a sermon basically attacking these new liberal ideas that were being promoted in the church. I lost my job over it. That's liberal. Too much education. Lives in an ivory tower. You know, when I was in high school. I worked at a gas station, Ivory Tower, not the bait not the greatest. I worked on my uncle's farm, not exactly an Ivory Tower. When I was working on a master's degree after we got married, my wife and I did enter an Ivory Tower every morning and every evening. We managed a laundromat, a lot of ivory, <laughs> whitewashing machines, white drying machines, you know. This was the ivory tower. So you draw your own conclusions. Um, some people think Mr. Ames wants to go to heaven. Ask him. <laughs> but this is, these are the rumors that float around on the Internet, and some people, you know, you've got to watch out for these people because they're this, they're this, they're this. Talk to the person. Go to the horse's mouth. Proverbs 18, 17. The principles, brethren, are here. If we will use these weapons, if we will use the information, if we will use the principles. Proverbs eighteen seventeen, Very simple, but very concise, very powerful. It says, the first one to plead his cause seems right. The first story you hear, the first version of the story that you hear sounds, wow, that's terrible. And you get all worked up about it. What you need to do is say, no, wait a minute, let's think about that. Let me get some more information. Let me learn the other side of the story. The first person who pleads his cause seems right until his brother or his sister comes and examines him. In other words, here's the other side of the coin. Here's what you weren't being told. See, if you use that principle, Satan's not going to get at you. He's not going to be able to use this weapon on you. Another weapon he'll use, let me try and get this finished here quickly, is offenses and hurt feelings and disillusionment. We've had people left the church because their minister bought some new ideas that he once preached against. And some people, well, that offended me. That hurt my feelings. I'm just going to have to leave. This can't be God's church. If you go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, about verse 10, Paul says, I plead with you, brethren, that you all be of one mind. He wasn't pleading with them because they were of one mind. He was pleading with them because they weren't of one mind. And they needed to become of one mind. They were divided. And it was still God's church. You know, we've got divisions today. But we've got to be careful that... We're not offended uh, because, again, we read in Matthew 18. You can read it there. That offenses will come. Offenses will come. Matthew 18:15 or 18:7. But it says, "Woe to the person who basically is doing the offending." You know, if I were promoting a lot of liberal ideas, the Sabbath is done away with, my brethren, my friends. You don't have to do that anymore. And you have a right to walk out of here or get me fired or whatever you want. But I'm not doing that. You know, Dr. Meredith not doing that. The others are not doing that. Don't be offended. Go to the person, Matthew 18, 15. If somebody does something that's offensive to you, go talk with them. But, you know, our approach is we'll go talk to the minister. But we don't want to go talk to the person. Go talk to the person. Say, you know, you've done something that really upset me. Can we talk about it? Can we bury the hatchet? Can we get over this? Now, you may need the ministers involved at some point in time to be kind of a referee there, but go talk with the person. And if you are the one that has offended somebody, don't be afraid to say, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that I said something. You know, it doesn't hurt to say, I'm sorry, and then you take Satan's weapons away from him. It doesn't hurt. Final weapon that Satan will use will be the cares of this world, Matthew thirteen. Matthew thirteen, the cares of this world could be distractions of one type or another, could be trials, persecution. You know, I came across another book recently, talking with Mr. Bruce Tyler. Subject of the book is the shallows. The shallows. And it's a book about what the internet is doing to our minds internet <laughs> our minds it says the internet is remaking us we're making us more adept to scanning and skimming but we're losing out on our capacity for concentration contemplation and reflection we're so used to we can't sit down at an airport without getting out our cell phone and and checking up on all the emails half of which you delete and they aren't any good anyways But you walk into an airport or someplace, everybody's sitting around. They don't talk to each other. They're all staring at their cell phone. This is what's happening to us today as a people. Internet using can be addictive. I've got to check my email. I've got to see what's happening over here. I've got to do this, got to do that. No, you don't. I was reading something recently where it said if you'll take a walk, for 30 minutes, 20 minutes, or 30 minutes in nature, walk by a pond, walk out in the woods, and said you'll come back after 20 or 30 minutes, and your brain will work better. Your brain will work better because you've got away from the jingle bells and the the, the cell phones ringing and everything else. Try it. Try it, and you'll like it. I think. Try it, and you'll like it. But this is what's happening to us today. Very interesting book. And again, it's talking about how the brain adjusts itself to working with the Internet, how the brain adjusts itself to other types of things. Okay, let's wind this up. <clears throat> what are some of the weapons that we have to use? You heard about that in the sermonette today. Prayer. Prayer. And so this, and prayers are not self-talk. You're not talking to yourself. You're talking to the God of the universe. You're talking to the God of the universe, and you can talk to God, who is your Father. You know, if somebody does something to you, your little boy or little girl, what do you do? You go tell Mom and Dad. <laughs> you go tell Mom and Dad, so they can help you out, and you can talk to your Father anytime. You know, David prayed three times a day. Daniel prayed three times a day. We're told to pray without ceasing. Bible study. Deuteronomy 17. Moses said the kings of Israel should make their own copy of the law. Read it, study it, think about it. Internalize it so you're thinking like God does. Meditation where you take time to think. I went to a science convention once. This was back in the 70s. And it was during the hippie time, and there were a lot of demonstrations going on. which was an older scientist from Eastern Europe who was being interviewed by the press. And some of these young guys were heckling him. And he just kind of backed away from the microphone. He said, you guys are pretty smart. You've learned how to use computers. You've learned how to use this and how to use that. He said, there's one thing you haven't learned how to use. You haven't learned how to think. At that same press conference, uh, this one guy was making a bunch of noise. He says, We're going to bring down the government. And I walked up to him later and said, can I ask you a question? I said, what are you going to do when you bring down the government? What plan do you have? And he just looked at me. Get out of here, kid. He had no plan. <laughs> they wanted to destroy the government, but they had no plan as what they were going to do after that. They weren't thinking. They weren't thinking. They were reacting. One of the keys that we have to use is God's spirit. That's another sermon. But we have the spirit of God to use. The world doesn't have that right now. The world doesn't have that. But we have a gift that God makes available to us if we repent. And if we're baptized and have hands laid on us. God says he'll give us his spirit. But then we have to use that spirit. It can lay there. But if we don't use it, if we don't nourish it, if we don't obey God, then he will withdraw that spirit. And we will lose that very powerful weapon to use.